This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss healthcare work done by visiting nurses. With me to discuss the topic is VNAA's President and CEO, Tracy Moorhead. Tracy, thank you for your time. I'm delighted to join you today. Thank you. Tracy's bio, of course, is posted on the podcast website. As always, let's begin with some brief background. Visiting nurse services or nurses visiting patients in their homes may have come full circle. Visiting nursing dates back approximately 130 years when free nursing care was provided to the poor. This practice became less common over the past several decades, principally as municipalities cut their health care slash public health budgets. Today, with an ever-increasing emphasis on keeping patients out of the hospital, as an aside, we now actually have hospital home pilot programs, Improving coordinated and comprehensive care and paying for or incenting payment for healthcare quality improved outcomes, the use of visiting nurses and other clinicians in the home appears to be on the rise. That is for visiting nurses and others to provide what's typically defined as post-acute care along with disease prevention and health promotion education. With me again to discuss visiting nurse work and polished form efforts to improve at-home care is the VNAA's Tracy Moorhead. So with that as background, Tracy, let's start with the obvious question. Can you tell me about your organization, VNAA? It represents nonprofit visiting nurse and other home health and hospice agencies, correct? Yes, our members are nonprofit providers of home health, palliative care, and hospice services. And increasingly, we are expanding care across the continuum to provide the prevention and wellness services that you referenced. Okay, great, thank you. So let's go to services or service delivery. Can you characterize for me services your organization uh, typically provide and to whom? Sure. Our members are, again, the nonprofit providers, and they range from the standalone and traditional visiting nurse agencies or services to health systems and also community-based providers of care. You don't have to be called a visiting nurse to be a member of VNAA. You just have to be a nonprofit provider. Our members um, very much provide post-acute care services, but I like to think of our industry as moving toward Generation 3.0, if you will, having originated with the free care for maternal and child health that you referenced, and with the implementation of the Medicare benefit in the 1960s, being really pigeonholed into this post-acute care bucket in the Medicare benefit. As needs have expanded and changed with the increasing prevalence of chronic conditions, the increasing elderly population in the country, the role of home-based care providers has also dramatically expanded. And so we are now providing prevention and wellness, post-acute care, palliative care, and end-of-life care in the home and in close coordination with providers and the rest of the patient and family caregivers healthcare team. So the entire continuum, so from maternal and child health to geriatric care. Absolutely. Give me a sense of what volume of care or how much care in the home is actually being delivered today. Any idea? Well, according to MedPAC, um, there's approximately $2 billion spent on post-acute care in this country, and approximately a third of it is spent on home health provided services. Okay, great. Let's go to 
policies in the so-called, again, post-acute, though these days, to be clear, it's not always post-hospital discharge. Exactly. In fact, more than half of home health, quote-unquote, never had a preceding hospital stay. So let's go to, there's a good deal of policy ferment, as you're well aware, uh, in the, again, so-called post-acute setting. Uh, this is largely because post-acute care can be poorly defined. It's frequently unclear. Uh, who needs it, by what provider, how much is appropriate, there's wide geographic variation, and of course how much we should pay for it by provider type. So there are a lot of questions and concerns yes. in post-acute. Everything you just said is true. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I've done my research. Yes. There's um, this movement now in pay for value or from volume to value bundling, bundling services. Explain how that would work in post-acute. So it's something that we're still testing and trying to figure out exactly how it will work. And I don't believe that there will be one model that will ultimately be identified as the preeminent model. I think it will vary based on the mix of providers in a various community, the types of patients that are living in that community, and the relative needs and disease burden overall. Um, what we see, however, is an opportunity to better coordinate care. And that's really what the bundle drives, improve care coordination so that everyone is focused on improving outcomes improving the patient health status, and keeping costs down. Our concern as the home health providers is that we need to be at the table when the bundle is developed. We risk becoming the commoditized remainder at the end of the payment tail otherwise. So the bundle is one fee yes. for an episode of care. So when you're saying being at the table, not left out of that negotiation relative, what is the episode of care and who gets the reimbursements? Right. So we have to be um, really valued from the beginning. If you look at post-acute care discharges in Medicare today, almost half of the discharges are discharged back into the community without any follow-up services. Of the 42% or so that are getting a post-acute care service, approximately 30% are going into home health. There's no real justification for who's getting home health versus who's getting something else, but we need to recognize that these home health providers play a critical role in helping people transition back into their daily lives, in keeping them from re being readmitted to the hospital, and helping them improve their um, health status as they recover from their acute episode. What's been the evidence to date? So we have what's called BIPSI, which is the uh, bundled... Um, Bundle Payment for Care Improvement. Care Improvement Act, or excuse me, provision mm -hmm. uh, within the Affordable Care Act. What's been the evidence to date on BIPSI? Well, so we do at BNAA have 22 member agencies who are participating in what's referred to as Model 3 BPCI programs. These programs have been running for less than a year, so we don't have a lot of data at this point. And many of the programs started with joint replacement bundles, which is really kind of the low-hanging fruit. How can we keep these um, very standard, or as standard as they can be in medicine, of course, um, procedures and um, from getting back into the hospital or from developing complications when they're back in their home? And we know home health can significantly uh, mitigate the chance of someone coming back into the hospital. So I unfortunately don't have data on outcomes, but I do know that home health has proven valuable in the Model 3 programs that we're participating in already. In BIPSI? Yes. But now there's legislation called BACPAC, mm -hmm. 
Uh, DC is nothing if not a long list of acronyms. What What's BACKPAC? <laughs> BACKPAC is a piece of legislation that was actually introduced in the prior Congress and has been reintroduced um, this year in the new Congress. Um, it seeks to develop a post-acute care coordinator role within communities to help patients have the right experience in post-acute care, to ensure that they're going to the right care setting, to ensure that that care setting is being appropriately reimbursed for their services, and to better monitor outcomes and care coordination. We don't think that uh, Backpack or BIPSI, either one, are the preeminent model. We think that there will need to be a number of options for managing a post-acute care bundle, but we do think the Backpack offers some important opportunities for experiment and conversation about how to best design these bundles, these payment bundles, to ensure appropriate reimbursement and coordination of the team. Great. So just to be clear, Backpack is the Bundling and Coordination Post-Acute Care Act. Yes. So let's go to this issue. We talked about paying for an episode of care, mm -hmm. so sort of a capitated payment. But we talk about site-neutral payment, and that leads us to the Impact Act. So first, what is site-neutral payment, and what is the Impact Act supposed to do about site-neutral payments? Well, so let me focus first on the broader implication of the Impact Act. Impact was passed in the prior Congress and signed into law, um, and it's currently um, being implemented uh, by CMS and some of their contractors, including the National Quality Forum. The problem prior to the passage and implementation of impact is that among the four post-acute care settings, there was really no ability to compare apples to apples. So for example, a joint replacement patient um, may be referred to either a skilled nursing facility, a SNF, or a home health agency. And yet there's no criteria or published outcomes or demonstrated value benefit for either one of those settings. I've had physicians say to me that for joint, replacement, joint replacement patients between 65 and 75, they automatically send them to home health. But if a joint replacement patient is over 75, they might just send them to a SNF. Well, what's the validation for that, right? The 75 or 78-year-old may be a competitive, former competitive tennis player who's in great shape, but the 65-year-old might be you know, my grandmother who's not in such great mm -hmm. shape and has multiple other chronic conditions. So impact is designed to help better identify the outcomes for specific types of patients and allow a more apples-to-apples -apples comparison across the post-acute care settings. I firmly believe that Backpack is going to highlight the significant value of home health providers in improving care outcomes and keeping costs down while having high rates of patient satisfaction. So for us, that's the real value and benefit of impact. And we're working closely with CMS and their contractors to ensure that the measures that are being developed for this cross-site measurement are going to be applicable and appropriate for particularly home health providers. In terms of the site-neutral payment, I think that it's most important that we focus on what is the care service being delivered. Um, there is going to be a difference between how the care is delivered and what it costs in home health versus how the care is delivered and what it costs in a skilled nursing facility, for example, for the patients that I just referenced. And we need to closely monitor that. But I think the quality aspect um, and the potential for improved quality that IMPACT offers is the most important component for us. Great. So just to be clear, IMPACT, again, is the legislation that passed in 14. It's the Improving Medicare Post-Acute Care Transformation Act. You did mention there are multiple post-acute care providers, just to make note. 
We mentioned skilled nursing facility, home health hospice. There are also something called ERFs and patient rehab facilities and LTACs, long-term care hospitals. Mm -hmm. And site neutral is that wherever the patient goes to one of these five providers, the provider would get paid the same. That would be the definition. Well, not so much for hospice. Hospice isn't really considered a traditional post-acute care provider, so hospice is not included in the impact. And they get a capitated rate. Right. And so they're paid differently. Yes. Let's stay with us since you mentioned. Let's stay with hospice. So hospice is looking at reimbursement reform. Let's just touch on that for a moment. Sure. Um, well, as we know, um, CMS and MedPAC particularly have been looking at um, the hospice payment model for the last few years um, with their contractors. And there's been some very good research done on um, the current payment model and um, the inappropriateness for certain patients of the current payment model. For example, my members, the nonprofit providers of home of hospice, hospice. services, um, typically receive their patients very close to the end of life. Um, when a patient comes in um, and passes away within 48 to 72 hours, there are significant costs involved in the intake, um, the support, the bereavement services for those patients and their family caregivers. A patient who is on hospice service for longer periods of time, um, in some cases up to six months or longer, the costs tend to level off and are not as high and consistent during the entire period of time that the patient is being served. For those reasons, we have concerns about how the hospice payment model is reimbursing those providers who tend to have shorter, more expensive hospice delivery services versus those providers who tend to have longer, less expensive, over the full, full course of the service, hospice services. The hospice uh, payment model research that's been done has looked at a couple of different approaches. So MedPAC has an approach called the U-shaped curve model. Um, it's a very interesting model. I think it's a good discussion point um, and starting point for the discussion, if you will. Um, I think more appropriate is some of the work that one of the CMS contractors, RTI, has done um, to look at a very case-sensitive uh, tiered payment model. The tiered payment model, and we have modeled this for some of our members, some of our members have modeled it with their own um, historic patient populations. The tiered model is much more sensitive to length of stay, uh, complexity of condition, risk scores, that sort of thing, um, appropriate drug costs, et cetera. And we believe that the tiered payment model would be a much more effective and appropriate model for hospice payment reform going forward. We do anticipate that CMS will make some movement this year to begin to test a new payment model. And currently the hospice reimbursement is so many dollars per day. That's, I think, last I looked, it was about $130. It's average, yes, and it does vary based on the complexity of the patient and the services needed. And local labor costs. Exactly. Okay, let's move to the telehealth issue, mm -hmm. because very important um, as it relates to post-acute care for fairly obvious reasons. Just to make note, I did look this up. In 2013, Medicare spent in some... For almost $500 billion, $493 billion in 2013 for Medicare uh, coverage. Of that $493 billion, they spent $12 million on telehealth, which is, <laughs> which is some might say, laughably little. I'm laughing. Um, there's been a long-standing effort to try to expand uh, teleservices, particularly to enable patients to be safely at home and not have to go to a post-acute setting. Mm -hmm. 
where's your uh, organization on telehealth? So we really struggle with telehealth um, for several reasons. One, our segment of the industry, the home-based care providers, are not eligible for reimbursement under meaningful use. So our segment of the industry has not been able to really make the investment with any support for that investment to integrate telehealth services or electronic medical records into their practices. So that's one problem. An agency who chooses to implement telehealth has to make the investment on their own. The second problem is really with regard to interoperability. This is, I think, an even greater challenge for our folks. If you think about a home health agency who is in a large or moderate-sized community, they may be working with two or more hospital systems or health systems. They may be working with three ACOs or four different physician group practices, and each one of those settings may have a different electronic medical record platform that, of course, don't speak to each other. How is the home health agency going to be a seamless part of the care coordination for any of those referral sources and the patients that they're serving? As a result, many of our agencies still rely on fax machines, which is, of course, not state-of-the-art <laughs> technology. Um, interoperability continues to be one of the single most significant challenges for our members. Another challenge is really reimbursement for the actual services, not just the investment in the acquisition of the technologies, but just in the provision of the services. The home, the home-based setting, care setting, is not yet approved as an, a site of origin for telehealth services, such as remote patient monitoring. And so even if our members make the investment to provide these services at a telehealth level to their patients on service, they aren't going to get reimbursed for it, even if they're collaborating with um, you know, a large health system, unless that health system has implemented some sort of special program. But there is a window here, and that is beginning this past January 1st, of course, Medicare will start, starts to pay this chronic care management fee, which yes. is $40 per patient per month. Your members being able to take advantage of that? Some of them are, yes, uh, particularly in agencies that um, have very large service areas. Um, so I have agencies that cover 24,000 square miles in Iowa, for example. Um, these agencies had already made great strides in providing care to um, far-flung patients from remote agencies that are part of their overall system. Um, those agencies have looked very closely at how to take advantage of this new code opportunity. Okay, thank you. With that, sadly, we're already at our time boundary, so maybe just a final comment or thought, Tracy? Well, I'd just like to reimburse, or I'm sorry, re <laughs> reinforce, I should say, um, the value that home health providers offer for all care delivery models and settings. We're not just post-acute care. We are truly providing services across the care continuum. And increasingly, and we haven't discussed Medicaid at all, uh, Medicaid expansion provides significant opportunities for the integration of home-based care providers. Great. Thank you again, Tracy. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.